men and older men and older women and all sorts of different kinds of people and different kinds of situations to hear many of you talk about the ways that that's affected your life and the way that that's been encouraging to you. So I want you to know that as encouraging as it's been to you, it's been encouraging to me as well. At the same time, I wonder if there's another thought nagging you in the back of your head as we talk about the ways that the gospel affects life. I wonder if, let's say, a young man three weeks ago heard me press into you the need for self-control in those years, right? Young men develop self-control. And I wonder if you heard that and that inspired you and you saw how good Jesus' ways are and you went home ready to live that out. And what you found is that your body still wants to do all manner of wickedness and that living with self-control as a young man is actually really hard because Jesus' ways are good, but they're also hard to do in our sinful frame. Or if maybe as a young mom you heard about the importance of loving your husband and children and the fact that these years might be the most impactful years of your life, I hope that lifted you up and encouraged you. But then when you get home and you have to try to do this with your imperfect kids and your imperfect husband and life doesn't go the way you feel like it's supposed to go, it actually becomes really hard to follow Jesus faithfully in that situation. And so I wonder if it struck you and kind of nagged at you how hard it is to actually pull this stuff off. The same thing two weeks ago when we talked about what it looks like to be a Christian at work and to follow your boss's leadership, right? To be honest at work and not steal from work, to prove yourself trustworthy in the way that you can shine like a light for the gospel in your secular workplace. How good is God to give us good guidance like that? Then you go try to do it with your imperfect boss and your coworkers who have this mix of corruption and goodness in them, and you find that it's actually very hard to live these things out. The same for older men who heard from Paul last week what a difference it makes to us young men when we see you live in dignity. Older women to hear how important it is to live with reverence and avoid gossip and to avoid substance abuse in those years. It's inspiring and then on one hand you realize when you try to live it out how hard it is. Jesus' ways are good and Jesus' ways are also hard too. And it can be sometimes discouraging to see his good ways laid out before you and to say to yourself, okay, that's good. I want to live like that. And then go home and find that you don't have the strength to do it. What distress that can leave a soul in. Say, I know what's right and I can't do it. I don't have the strength to do it. Why would Jesus lay these ways before me if I don't have the strength to walk faithfully in them? That tension is what I want to hit on today because that tension is what today's verses will answer for us. Now, some of us are asking that question from the inside, right? Is there any source of strength by which I can walk in these good ways that Jesus lays before me? I want you to know a lot of people ask this question from the outside as well. I was part of a church once that had a young woman who was visiting. She was in her teenage years, and she visited for a number of weeks along with her parents and uh, came up to her and started chatting with her one day and decided just to get bold and just asked her, you know, you've been hearing a lot about Jesus here at this church. What do you think? And to my surprise, she said, well, I think it makes a lot of sense. She said, you know, I'm messed up got that figured out. The world around me is messed up. 
a God who loves us and is willing to save us, that makes sense. It makes sense there wouldn't be any other way other than Jesus. Like this all adds up, really. It seems like I really need this salvation you're talking about. And so that emboldened me. And so I asked her, well, do, do you want to receive the gospel? Do, do you want to follow Jesus? And she said, well, I want to, but it sounds really hard. And then she kind of went into some of the things that she would like to do, but she knows she can't do anymore if she follows Jesus. She has to start actually obeying her parents and being honest with them. And she can't do things with boys that she wants to do if she follows Jesus. And it's just hit her that his ways are good, but I really don't want to follow him when it comes down to it. People on the outside struggle with this same question, right? His ways are good, but how on earth am I going to pull this off and follow him? Well, what we're going to look at today is the source of strength, the source of ever-flowing strength that you have that can enable you to walk faithfully in Jesus' ways. If your heart is weary sometimes and says, I want to walk in his ways, but I know my body can't do it, is there a source you can go to? Is there somewhere you can go to be refreshed and regain the strength to walk in Jesus' ways? The answer is yes, and that answer is here in these verses we're going to look at. We're going to finish out chapter 2 today by reading verses 11 through 14. Verse 15, I preached to you in an earlier sermon. Let's look together at Titus chapter two, verses 11 through 14. Spirit says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The words of the Lord. What we have in those words is your source for your personal holiness and our source as a church for health and growth. If you want to walk in Jesus' holy ways, if you want to see our church become healthy, if you want to see our church grow, the source for these things the Apostle Paul gives us by the power of the Spirit of God in this one long sentence that we're going to look at today. Through it, what I believe the Lord wants to do is refresh his people. That source of strength that we have is the mighty works of Jesus Christ. And I believe what the Lord wants to do is lay them before you today like a fresh, ice-cold glass of water and just say, drink, my child, and be refreshed in the gospel. So let's look at them today and be refreshed together. Before we do that, I want to tell you something that's happened in my own life recently. Uh, Something kind of small and trivial, but in some ways kind of a big deal. Uh, I I noticed that I was doing something wrong recently. I had been walking through the day without enough energy to do all the things that I want to do. Between my wife that 
that I love and my four kids that I love to care for and all of you and the church and everything that I'm doing, just walking through it all day saying, I love this work that God has given me and I just wish I had enough strength to make it through the day. I'm tired all the time. I'm sleeping more than I ever was, but still not resting and still waking up tired and what is going on? And then... I walked by, I don't know why, but I think one of the kitchen cupboards was left open, and I saw my favorite insulated water glass just sitting up there in the cabinet. And I looked at it, and my heart kind of left a little bit, and I said, oh, I love that thing. Oh, I used to be so good at walking around and drinking water all the time. I was constantly refreshed. It was great for me. I always had energy. And somehow I just fell out of the heaven. I really don't know what happened. But I just kind of looked at it and remembered that. And I said, oh, you know what? I'll pull that thing down. And I went and got some ice and went to the faucet and filled it up. And I think I drank two of these. I think it's like 30 ounces or something. I drank two of them that day. And the next day, I was so refreshed and energized And it just hit me like, oh, Dave, you dummy. Like, you're tired all the time because you're not drinking any water. Like, your body's made to drink water and you're not drinking it. So I tried to get back in the habit, started drinking more water, found myself more energized, more refreshed. What a simple thing to do and suddenly find refreshment. And here's the funny thing. I was walking around all day without the strength to do the work that I knew God had called me to do. When... I live in a house and I work in an office that both have ready supplies of flowing water whenever I want to turn the faucet on, right? Only thing I have to do is go there and fill up the cup and and drink. My fridge even has one of those fancy things that you can just put your cup up to, right? And you get filtered cold water when it works right out of there and it's fantastic. All I had to do is walk up to it and drink. And I wasn't doing that. So I had the source right in front of me. And yet I was walking around dehydrated all day because I wasn't just taking advantage of it and going there and refreshing myself. I say that because just like I was walking around dehydrated, even though I had a ready and ever-flowing source of good water, many Christians walk around trying to do their work spiritually dehydrated. When they have right at their disposal an ever-flowing stream of spiritual refreshment. And that refreshment is what we're going to look at today, the mighty works that Jesus Christ does for you. Which, just like water, you can't just drink a bunch and be good forever. You have to continually go back to and be refreshed by so that you can walk through the day able to walk in the calling that Jesus has given you. So that's the point today. The point today is that Jesus' good works for you are the source of your good works for him. Anything good that you do for him is because of good things that he is doing for you. And that is why the apostle spends so much time in this paragraph, in this long sentence, so many words dedicated to the works that Jesus has done for you. Let me show you that point in the way that the chapter is structured, and then we'll dive into the actual words in this text and see what he's done for you. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and look at it with me. Just look at all of chapter 2 at once. Your Bible may have paragraphs like mine does, and if it does, you'll probably have verses 1 through 10 as one paragraph, and then verses 11 through 14 as another paragraph. And that's a good division if they're divided that way. Because the first paragraph, 
verses one through 10, is all stuff that we do for Jesus, right? Whoever you are, this is the stuff you need to do for him. If you're a young man, do this for him. If you're a young woman, do this. If you're an older man, do this. Whoever you are, here is the stuff that you do for Jesus. So if you wanted to put a heading over verses one through 10, over that paragraph, it would be stuff we do for Jesus. Stuff I do for Jesus, right there. That's one through 10. Then you look at 11 through 12 and the focus flips. 11 through 12 is all things that Jesus does for you. All these verbs of he appeared and he gave himself and he trains us and all those verbs you see are all things that he does for us. So if you wanted to put a heading on verses 11 through 14, it would be stuff Jesus does for us, right? You got that? So first paragraph is stuff we do for Jesus. Second paragraph is stuff that Jesus does for us. Now, here's the, here's the linchpin. What's the connection between those two paragraphs in the text itself? I looked at about a half dozen translations this week. They all started verse 11 the same way, and so I'll just take a gamble that yours starts this way. Verse 11 starts with the word for, and that's the linguistic connection. That's the, con- the word of a connection there between those two paragraphs. So the logic is, we do all this stuff for Jesus, for Jesus does all this stuff for us. You could use the word because if you want to. We do all this stuff for Jesus because Jesus does all this stuff for us. The ground for why we do all that stuff for him through that word for is stated to be because of what he does for us. And that is why I say Jesus' good works for you are the source of your good works for him. So Paul's not just going into a tangent here randomly about things that Jesus does for us. He's giving you the source of all those good works we've proclaimed the last three weeks. And while we're at it, all the good works that we will proclaim for the next three weeks as we go through chapter three together. Jesus' good works for you are the source of your good works for him. So let's look at the, look at the sentence ourselves. I just ask this question, what does Jesus do for us? I'm going to divide it up like this, three different categories. There are things that Jesus has done for you, finished work that he's done for you. And then secondly, there are some things Jesus is doing right now for you, and he's not done with them, so he will keep doing them for the rest of your life. And then thirdly, there are some things that he has not done yet for you, but he promises he will do for you. So we got past, present, and future. What has he done for you? What is he doing for you? What will he do for you in the future? We'll divide it up like that, even though these things are kind of scattered about through the sentence. So first, what has Jesus already done for you? This is a work that is done and finished. He'll never do it again because he never has to. And we get two past tense words that tell us about what Jesus has done for us. One of them in verse 11, appeared. And the other one in verse 14, he gave himself. Those two parts say that he appeared bringing salvation for all people. And then that he gave himself for us. When it says that he appeared bringing salvation that refers to his coming to earth as first a fetus and then a baby born of a virgin. 
walking the earth to bring to us salvation, to bring the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, there is a way you can come back and be reconciled to God. He came with this message for all people, everybody, any, any kind of person who wants to do it, young men, old men, young women, older women, servants, bosses, teachers, learners, everybody. He came with that message for all. And that is part of why in the paragraph before, there are instructions for all different kinds of people because he came for all different kinds of people. He came bringing salvation to all. And verse 14 says that the way he did this was by giving himself to do two things, to redeem us and to purify us. When it says that he gave himself, uh, he means it just like we mean when we talk about a soldier who gave themselves in battle, right? They gave their life in battle. Or when we talk about a policewoman who gave herself in the life line of duty, right? She gave her life. He gave his life. Difference, though, is that he didn't willingly risk his life for us. He went to certain death for us. He knew exactly what the plan was. And he said, Father, if this cup can pass from me, take it from me, but not what I will, what you will, right? He walked up the hill. He allowed himself to be unjustly tried in a corrupt court. He allowed himself to be beaten. He allowed himself to be mocked. He allowed himself to be led up this hill of Calvary and then nailed to a cross and crucified. We have accounts of this in all four of the Gospels in our Bible. He did this because it was God's will. It was God's will to crush him in our place. And it says that what he did there, he gained for himself two things, actually many things that he did as he died, but two of them are listed here. The first one it says in verse 14 is to redeem us from all lawlessness. Uh, to redeem means to buy somebody back or to buy something back. Now today it's a weak word because the only thing you redeem these days is a coupon for a free ice cream cone or something and it sounds trivial. In those days, if your brother was sold into slavery, you tried to go redeem your brother by paying the price and buying him back so that he could be free. That's something of what Jesus has done for you. There is a high price to pay. The price he had to pay to get us back was to give his own life and his own blood for us. So he did this to make us his own possession, redeeming us from lawlessness. Lawlessness being the state that we were in. Generation after generation, God had revealed his glory in creation. He had revealed his good ways to us, writing them on our hearts, revealing them in the law that he gave to his people. And for generation after generation, we said, no thanks. We watched the trees change in autumn. And when we should have said, okay, whatever God made those trees to do that, if I ever find him, I will give him all of my worship and I will order my whole life around his ways because this God makes leaves change in the autumn. Who is this glorious God? This God makes the sun to rise and set every day whoever made all this stuff I'm his if I ever find him but that's not what we did no we we fashioned our own idols out of anything we could find gave them eyes even though they couldn't see gave them ears even though they couldn't hear we bowed down and worshiped them we took his good ways for the good flourishing of all people and instead lied to each other stole from each other, murdered each other, committed all kinds of immorality, raped each other, all terrible things we do to each other. All lawlessness, it says. Generation after generation, we were doing this. And just to contrast this here, 
there were angels in heaven that rebelled from God when Satan rebelled from God, right? You can read about this in other pages. And when they did, he did not offer them a way back. He just cast them out. And we don't have any reason to believe there will ever be a, a way made for these rebellious angels to come back. And God is not bad for that. He's just and good for handling rebellion that way. And here's the good news for us. He would be just if he did the same thing for us. If he said, okay, generation after generation, these people hate me. I will give to them the fury they deserve. He could do that if he wanted to. Instead, he came to earth bringing salvation for all people, offering himself as a sacrifice in our place and proclaiming to all, repent, come back. I have made a way for you to come back to me. The kingdom of heaven has come in Jesus Christ. He gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness, buying us as his own possession. And that's not all. There's something else that it says he did as he died for us. He also gave himself to purify us as a people for his own possession. So that means he didn't just pay the price to make us his own, but he also cleansed us from all of our unrighteousness. And this is so important because there are so many people out there who are willing to believe that this stuff is true, willing to believe that they need to be saved. They sense their need for salvation. They sense the depth of their sin and that before God, they're so defiled before his holiness. They sense that and what they're having trouble with is trying to figure out, as much as I have defiled myself, why would God ever welcome me back into his presence? Right? What, what God would, would save me? I mean, these other people who have done things that I haven't done, maybe them, but for God's grace to extend to me, no, I, I have become too dirty for that. A lot of people feel that way. Uh, I think of once I was talking to a man who had lived a homosexual lifestyle and he was near the end of his life. He was dying. I was pleading with him to return and come to Jesus. And he believed that his lifestyle was wrong and he believed that he had needed to turn from it for years and hadn't turned from it. And the part that he was wrestling with, the part that he wouldn't believe that I was trying to convince him on was that Jesus was willing to purify him. Jesus was willing to make him clean and take him back into his family. And his heart, his attitude was, no, no, Dave, you don't understand how far I've gone. When, when you do the kind of things that I've done, there's no turning back. You don't come back to God that's off the table when you do stuff like this. Some of you may feel that way about your own lives as well. Some of you may be Christians and still wonder, like, would God really cleanse me of that thing I did a long time ago? Some of you may not have your faith in Jesus yet, and that might be the hurdle that you're trying to get over. Like, would he extend his grace even to me? And if that's you, I just want you to stare down this word, purify. Christians aren't pure because of what we do. And we aren't pure because our sin wasn't as bad as other people's sins. Christians are pure because the blood of Jesus cleanses us and makes us pure. And that means that no matter who you are, you cannot have run so far. You cannot have defiled yourself so much that you're beyond God's grace. All you must do is turn and put your trust in him and you will find these words true of you that he gave himself to purify you, 
to send you spotless into the presence of a holy God who says, welcome child, my pure and spotless child, no matter who you are. Some of you know that I was on vacation uh, this last week, well, that's why I went here last Sunday. And uh, while we were down there, we got to do something really fun that I have done in a long time, which is we got to ride horses, our family together. Uh, we have four kids, three of them rode the horses and we're all standing out there. And I was excited for my mom because she grew up around horses, but she didn't get to spend much time around them now. So she was getting to be around them again and she was happy. And they lead a couple horses out and they took out this one horse that was just, it wasn't big, but it was beautiful. It was a white horse with black spots all over it, just like a Dalmatian. You can imagine a Dalmatian sitting on a fire truck, just those, that same spot pattern all over a horse that was twice the size of a dog, just so beautiful. They walked it out there, and I'm just staring at this thing as it goes by, and they put the horse in front of one of my children, and uh, the rancher says, all right, little girl, your horse's name is Yuck. And you know when he does that, well, just give him a minute and he'll tell the story of how that horse got to be named Yuck. And sure enough, we all stood there in silence and he told the story. And he said, well, here's what happened. We, we bought the horse and the, they shipped the horse to us. The horse came here in a trailer. So, you know, they had paid the price for the horse. They bought the horse. Open up the trailer doors to see this beautiful new horse that they had bought. And it was covered, he said, in mud. Now, he said mud because there were kids around, but you guys know what kind of stuff usually collects in horse trailers. So mud and whatever else all over this horse when they opened it up. And they said, oh, dear, look what we just bought. <laughs> and there were kids there that kind of looked to see the new horse. And one of the kids saw this horse stick its head out of the back of the trailer. And the child said, Yuck! And so they took the horse and said, well, it's our horse now. And they let it down the ramp and they took the horse into the stable and they washed the horse up and got all of the who knows what off of the horse. And then they learned that it was actually a really beautiful horse underneath all of that mud and all of that whatever else. And so in good humor, they named the beautiful horse Yuck because that is what one of the children said to them. Well, they paid the price for the horse, but they didn't just buy the horse they cleaned the horse off and they made it beautiful and pure again. And Christian, that is something of what Jesus does for you. He doesn't just pay the price to make you his own. He cleans you off. And whatever sins you may be falling into today, you cannot tarnish what he has done for you. You're not righteous in God's eyes because you live better than you used to. You're righteous in God's eyes because as soon as he got a hold of you, the first thing he did was clean you off and present you spotless and pure before God. There's nothing you can do to defile that. He didn't just pay the price for you, Christian. He purified you as well. That is why you are able to live a pure life now. Right? We're not pure because of how we live now. We live the way we do now because we have been made pure. Another page of the Bible says it like this, to walk in a manner worthy of your salvation, right? Your purification has been done, so now walk in a pure life. I hope there is someone who hears all of this today and just longs for these blessings to be true of them. 
These words were written to Christians who had already come into the kingdom of God about what Jesus had already done for them. So they don't give you the instruction you need on how to make these blessings true for you. All you must do, if you hear of these things and you say, I want Jesus to do this to me, I want to be his, I want to be redeemed from my lawlessness, I want to be purified, all you must do is call out to Jesus and ask him to do it for you. On another page of the Bible, it says, they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If that is what you want, don't wait till the end of this message. Just look to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you do this for me? Would you save me? You will find him faithful to keep his every promise and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If that's you this morning, we can't do our normal deal where we meet afterwards and we get to talk about it. And so I just want to ask you, either tell the person you came with that you want to put your faith in Jesus now, or get a hold of me through email this week and let me know. The first thing you ought to do is just tell somebody what Jesus has done for you. For everybody else, this is one of those sources of running water that you need to go back to. You want to live a Christian life faithfully you have to go back and drink of this water all the time. So it's set before you right now. Jesus appeared to bring salvation for you. Jesus gave himself to redeem you from lawlessness and to purify you. Just take that glass of water and just drink and be refreshed. Find yourself able then to live a holy life. And then come back and drink all again and find yourself able to live that holy life. This is how an older Christian man can find the strength to walk in dignity, by refreshing himself in this good news. This is how a younger Christian woman can find herself with the strength to love her husband and love her children and follow her husband's leadership even though he's not perfect because of these meditations on what he has done for us. There you find the strength for your holiness, the strength to live out every instruction in the chapter before and the strength to live out everything that is coming in chapter three. So friends, take of that water and drink of that water. That's what Jesus has done for you. He's not doing any of that again. He did it once, once is enough, and it's all done with. This sentence spends a lot less time talking about what he's doing now and what he will do, so we'll spend less time on that too. Let's move next to what he's doing right now, presently for you. There is one ing verb, one present tense verb, and that is in verse 12. He is training. What he's doing for you now is training you. He's training us. I'll read that whole, whole part of it. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So he's training you basically to not do bad stuff anymore and to do good stuff now, right? The work's been secured for you to make you forgiven in heaven. Now he is training you to live righteously and live in that salvation. This is also hinted at later when verse 14, when he uses the phrase zealous for good works. Uh, I didn't finish the sentence earlier. To make for himself a people who are of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Right Now that he saved you, you're zealous for good works. So that's what he's doing for you now. He's training you to live in righteousness. And this word training is a perfect word for what the apostle is getting at here because he has in mind on one hand, uh, you know, teaching and educating, teaching you what the right ways are, and also that daily in-your-face discipline that makes you stay the course, right? And who does that better today than a personal trainer, right? You go to the gym, you answer some questions for them, they'll write you out a workout plan, right? 
But they're not a great trainer if they just write you out a workout plan and they hand it to you and they send you on home on your way, right? Because we all know what's going to happen. We're not going to follow through on the workout plan, right? So that's why a trainer is down there on the floor with you while you were doing crunches saying, four more, you got this right there in your face yelling at you. So, okay, three more. I know you got this. Give me two more right there getting you all the way there, disciplining you so that you can follow through on this training regimen they give you. They're not just putting the good ways in front of you. They are pushing you every step of the way to get there. And that is what Jesus is doing for you as well. He doesn't just lay his good ways before you in the Bible. He's also in your face every day, making sure that you're doing it through his spirit that dwells in every Christian and just pokes at your conscience when you know you have done something wrong. Through your Christian friends and Christian spouse who take a risk every now and then to say, you know, you really shouldn't be doing that, friend through sermons that step on your toes, through passages in the Bible that you read in the morning and they just convict your heart because you know you haven't arrived yet. These are ways Jesus is training you, disciplining you, helping you to live a holy life. And so if you want to pull off the stuff we've been talking about the last three weeks, you need to embrace his training of you. You need to embrace it every time the word convicts you. He's training you in that moment. You need to embrace it every time a godly person tries to correct you for sin. There's that instinct in us, right, that just wants to search the Bible to prove why that person is wrong, right? You're not searching the Bible to figure out whether they're right or wrong in their correction of you. You're searching the Bible to figure out how wrong they are because we don't want the person correcting us to be right. You got to overcome that fleshly instinct and say, okay, Jesus, I will receive any discipline you give to me even if it's from an imperfect friend who gives me imperfect advice. So that's the second glass of water that you've got to take and drink and be refreshed by. Yes, following Jesus is hard. Doing a crunch and ab routine is hard as well, but it's easier with a trainer in front of you. And friend, you have a trainer. You have Jesus Christ coming alongside of you, helping you to live in holiness. Thirdly, what will Jesus do for you? All right, we talked about what he's done and finished with. We talked about the training he's doing now and he will keep doing for the rest of your life because he's not finished with that. There's some things he will do. He hasn't even done yet. He promises and you're waiting for it. And we see that in verse 13. Verse 13 says that we are, while we're living godly lives now, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what he's gonna do. He's gonna come again, this time in glory for his church. And that means that your training won't last forever. That means there's going to come a day when following Jesus isn't hard and good, but just good, because all of these hassles that make it difficult will be gone. Your imperfect spouse won't be there to be imperfect anymore. Your imperfect boss either won't be there or will be perfected, right? Your flesh that desires to do all these things you shouldn't do, Jesus will overcome it. He will give you a new heart. Following Jesus will one day just be good and not hard and good. And so while we live these godly lives, we have to do it waiting for the future. Even with all the resources he gives you now, wouldn't it be 
so difficult if we had to live faithfully for eternity like this, if there is never a finish line in this race. Well, that's why you have to live looking forward to the finish line, knowing that the number of years left is finite. This is somewhat of why wearing masks and following COVID restrictions is so hard. We don't know when it's gonna be over. We kind of wonder, like, am I gonna have to wear this uncomfortable thing forever, everywhere I go for the rest of my life, right? What if you knew that on December 3rd of this year, the whole thing was gonna be over with and you could rip your mask off forever? Would it be easier to make it then having to wear these uncomfortable things? That could be a whole lot easier if you knew when the end was coming. When there's a finish line to the race, you can run with more strength. And that's why, Christian, you need to keep your eyes on the finish line to this race of righteousness. When you know there is a finish line coming, you can make it more easily in holiness. So there's the third glass of water you need to drink. Take all three of these and just be refreshed to live a holy life for Jesus Christ. Remember the logic again, embrace Jesus' works for you so that you can do your works for him. Everything you do is built on what he does for you. It's true of what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So we've talked a lot about how that applies to your personal holiness, right? My personal holiness. It gives us strength. Return to that, be refreshed, right? Let's finish out by talking about what this means for us as a church. Uh, because the truth is the book of Titus was written, as I've said many times in the last few weeks, to strengthen all of the churches, right? To strengthen the churches on creed. It's a formula for church health. Healthy leadership plus healthy Christians equals a healthy church. And even Paul putting this here, the mighty works of Jesus for us, is meant to strengthen our church, right? Meant to help us grow and be more healthy. How does it do that? Well, it does that when we get refreshed in the good works of Jesus and then we're able to live holy, and then people notice, and we're able to spread the gospel more faithfully and fruitfully because they see the change in our lives. This is something Jesus talks about when he talks about a city on a hill, right? Let your, you're a city on a hill, it should not, or you're the light of the world, I'm sorry, a city on a hill should not be hidden, right? People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, they put it on a stand and the whole house sees it. And then he says, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they might see something, I'll leave that blank, and praise your Father in heaven. All right, so when we shine like a city on a hill, people see that and they are drawn to the gospel and they're drawn to want to praise God. The trouble is that blank that I gave us, we tend to put the wrong stuff in the blank. We tend to think, let our light shine before men that they might see our billboards on the interstate and praise our Father in heaven. But that's not how it works. Billboards are good. We'll take every billboard the Lord gives us to get the message up there, but that's not the light shining. Or we might want to say that they might see your snazzy social media campaigns and praise your Father in heaven, but that's not what it says either. And it doesn't even say that they might see your exuberant pastor and his great personality and praise your Father in heaven. It doesn't say that either, right? Every good exuberant pastor God gives us will take as a gift, but that's not the light. That's not what does it. What it says is that they might see your good works and praise your Father who is in heaven. When you walk in holiness, people notice that you're different. And that makes them want to know something about the gospel. 
Now, the part of that that's important here is that here we have the source of that holiness, right? When you are refreshed by the gospel week after week, day by day, then you can live in holiness. And then you can be a part of growing our church in that lifestyle that you live. And so our strategy for ministry, our church growth formula is basically to refresh you guys in the gospel as much as we can and then just turn you loose on Greenwood and Indianapolis, let you live in holiness and see what the Lord does with that. So for instance, when we do music here on Sunday morning, if we wanted to fill this room up, there are two ways you can do that with music really reliably. One is nostalgia and the other is trendiness. If, if your music is fashionable, People feel like, oh, I can worship God and be cool at the same time, and that will fill a building. Or if your music makes people feel like they're back in the day, you know, and back in those times that they love, that'll fill up a building as well. But neither of those are the strategy that we're doing. No, we are scattering, scavenging ancient hymnody and modern hymns and just looking for the most gospel-centered words that we can find because we want you refreshed in the gospel every week. Our priority is not nostalgia, it's not trendiness, it's not cool, we want you refreshed in the gospel. Because then, an older man can come into our church, and he can be refreshed in the gospel, find strength for holiness, and then walk out and live his life, and people will see him and say, who is that older man that walks so dignified, just like Paul talked about last week, and I've never heard him crack a dirty joke, I've never seen him be grumpy, who is this holy old man? And then he can say, well, let me tell you about this Jesus who has changed my life, and now he's got credibility because he's been refreshed in the gospel, he's living in holiness. This is why we have confession of sin in many of our worship services. Uh, it's not because it's cool or trendy, it's really not. Uh, but we know that there are young moms who are coming into this church and on the way in the minivan, they snapped at their kids and they're feeling guilty about it and they walk in here with a weight of satanic guilt in their heart. And when we get to the confession of sin, there they have an opportunity to say, Jesus, I should not have spoke to my daughter that way. Will you forgive me? And they get to hear it from the Bible. Yes, daughter, you, you're forgiven. I love you. Then she can walk out refreshed. No more guilt from Satan now. Now she's refreshed. Now she can live in holiness. Now she can live at home loving her husband and her children. And the neighbors can look and smell the aroma of love in that house and say, what is different about that house? Now they're curious about the gospel and now she can share the gospel with them. On and on. Our strategy here is just to refresh you with the gospel so that you can live in holiness. So let's do it, church. Let's drink of this water. Let's live in holiness. Let's shine like lights in the world, and then let's tell them about Jesus by God's power. Let's do it. Let's pray.